ಸಹನಾವತು ಸಹನೌ ಪುನಕ್ತು ಸಹ ವೀರ್ಯಂಕರವಾಹೈ ತೇಜಸ್ವಿನಾವತೀತಮಸ್ತಮಾವಿಷಾವಹೈ Welcome everyone to today's class. Before I begin today's class, I just wanted to uh, read a quote from, well, not a quote, but something I've been reading. It's by Swami Dayananda Saraswati. I'm just studying his books. preparing for our Bhagavad Gita classes soon. So I'm studying from other, other gurus as well to give you a better picture. So in there he says, and I'm taking it out of context here, he says, you may think because of your devotion, you will go to heaven and sit with God. However, you will still be ignorant. In addition, how long will it be before you become bored there and want to come back on the other hand the reward for all your prayers offered either in this life or in previous lives the reward for all your prayers offered either in this life or in previous lives is stumbling upon the means of knowledge for knowing the atma or even understanding what a means of knowledge is so because of all so we just studied cause and effect so i thought this would be relevant so because of all your past prayers your good behavior your punya you stumble upon the means of knowledge for knowing the atman so you stumble across this knowledge it doesn't come to you you stumble on it now you can either kick it away or you can take it and see what it's about it's ent- entirely up to you so you see how poignant that is when you get it it's w- what you do with it that matters so it doesn't automatically mean that just because you've come across it you will get it you'll absorb it you still have to put in the effort so this is why not everybody even if they're exposed to the subject will take it on some people will kick the ball back some people will take it home we don't know so therefore i just want to share that with you because i thought it was quite poignant to cause an effect yeah does everybody understand what 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 it meant nilam does it make sense yeah great so now anyway, i'll share that with you so we're on chapter 18 theory of perception this chapter and especially the next three chapters which is the end of the book is a very subtle portion of this book but it has all the answers to the mysteries of the universe all your questions about life who or what is god what the world is who you are your purpose it's all in the last three chapters of this book which we're going to cover but in order to understand the answers what has been said you'll have to put in your individual effort
you'll have to study these last few chapters of the book in greater depth, which only you can do. So I just wanted to let you know that you know it, it will need you putting in some effort to study in order to you for you to understand the depth of the answer. So any subject you study, any subject in order to understand it better, you need to put in effort to study it, to absorb it, to understand it. And this is like the deepest subject you can come across. So you can't get it in just one and a half hour, one hour class in a week. You have to put in yourself effort if you want to understand it. Yeah. So this chapter talks about the world and how it is perceived. I'm just having a quick recap. We see the world with our eyes, with our ears. We, we perceive the world with our five senses, taste, smell, hearing. This is how we perceive the world. So the question arises, we said, with whose senses are we to take as right? Plants and animals view the world differently. They have their own way of seeing the world. Whose senses do we take as this is the world? That is the question to think about. You can't say only the way humans perceive the world is the right, right way. So what is the exact nature of the world? So this phenomenon of the world, different philosophers in Western society throughout time have put their different theories forward. And we covered them last week, the idealist and the realist. So today we're going to see what Vedanta says about the perception of the world, the phenomenon of this world, the Vedantic theory of perception we're going to study. Now, I know some of this will go above some of your heads, and I would say don't worry about it. Whatever you get is a bonus, okay? I wouldn't worry too much about it. I was going to just summarize the last portion, but then I decided that it would not be fair on someone who is really interested in this topic, that one person maybe. Also to be thorough in representing Swamiji's work, in this book, in this class, I thought it would be better just to take it as it is. And whoever gets it, gets it. Yeah. Is that okay? All right. So any questions before we begin? There's a lot of equations in here. So if you've got a pen and paper you might, and you haven't got the book, you want to write it down. If you have the book, just follow it so you get a basic understanding of it. This is Maths 101. <laughs> okay. The Vedantic fair perception. So we said the idealist theory, two, two schools of thoughts. The idealist, their theory is that the mind projects the world. No mind, no world. Number one. The realists say it is the object, and regardless of the mind's involvement, the object exists, and that is the world. So what Vedanta says, that both are necessary. The subject, i.e. the mind, to perceive, and the object of perception. Meaning, if you see a river, we'll only see it if the mind is there and the river is there. 
quite straightforward. The mind has to be there and the river has to be there. Basically, that's all you need to know. But there's one more thing, and that is the role of Brahman. Vedantic theory of perception brings in the role of Brahman, God. Where does God play this? What part does God play in this perception of this world? As Meghna said last week's class, if a tree fell in the woods, did it make a noise? If the mind was there to observe it, yes, then you'd perceive it. But if it wasn't there, we don't know. So, therefore the mind, the perceiver, the subject has to be there, and so does the object. Is it okay that any questions? Yeah, Vanita. Can you just tell me what page it is in that big book? If you... Oh, I haven't got a clue, because the book I've got is about 10 generations oh. old. Okay. <laughs> Uh, using the full works. 708. Okay. 708. Using the full works, Ravi? Yeah. Full works, 708. Okay. Megna. Can you read paragraph one? Vedantic theory of perception. The theories of idealism and realism have accented the participation of the subject and object, respectively, in the creation of the world. They have exposed their limitation in their leaning entirely towards one of them. The idealist has been rigid in holding on to the subject alone and the realist to the object. The Vedantic theory of perception softens their views to accommodate both their stands. It finds the meeting point to explain the phenomenon of the world. So, it's saying both the idealist and the realist theories are partly correct. You need the subject, the mind, and you need the object to create the world. You need both. That's what they're saying, Vedanta. But they're both incorrect to the fact that only one is necessary to create the world. You see the difference? You just can't create the world with the mind and not only with the object. You cannot say that only the object or subject creates the world. This is the flaw in their arguments. Yeah? One is saying only the mind, the other one saying only the object. This is the flaw. So let's take the next paragraph. The idealists have observed that the world could not have arisen without the action of the subject, that there can be no world without the play of the mind, without thoughts, that the mind's perception is necessary for, for perceiving the world. In the absence of the mind, there can be no perception of the world. The idealists assert that. So far as this observation is concerned, they are right. But they take a step further to declare that there is nothing apart from the subject mind responsible for the creation of the world. It is the action of the subject, mind, thoughts alone that produces the world, nothing else. And that the object plays no part in it. Idealists have right insofar 
as they hold, idealists are right insofar as they hold that the world could not have arisen without the subject, without the mind. But they err when they declare that nothing else, nothing other than a mind is responsible for creation. They err in rejecting the participation of the object. It's basically what we just said. There's two schools of thought. Idealists say that it's the mind that creates the world, no mind, no world. We just said that. And they're right. In deep sleep, in dream, there's no world. No mind, no world. The world disappears for us in deep sleep. But they are wrong when they say that nothing else is necessary, meaning the object is not needed. We're just covering the same thing over and over again. Yeah? Before we get to the Vedantic theory. Meghna. As opposed to the idealists, the realists have observed the creation of the world is due to the action of the object. That the object alone is responsible for the perception. In the absence of the object, there can be no world. The realists assert that. But they also further declare that nothing apart from the object is responsible for creating the world. The subject has no part to play in it. Here again, the realists are right insofar as they hold that the world could not have arisen without the object. But they err when they declare nothing other than the object is responsible for creation. They go wrong when they reject the participation of the subject. Realists are saying the opposite, that the object is real and it is due to the object that you can see it. If there is a horse, everyone will see a horse. They are right up to this point, but they are wrong when they say that the mind is not needed for there to be a perception. So do you see the both schools of thoughts? We covered it last week. Do you see both schools of thought? The idealist and the realist. They're both right partly. Any, any clarifications before we get to the Vedantic? Nikish, I don't think you were here last week. No. So this is the Western philosophy of how the perception of the world. Any clarifications before we move on? Dharmesh, make sense? Just the one question. Yeah. You said that mind only works in this world, the waking world, but the mind also is there in the dream state, otherwise we would not remember our dreams, would we? When did I say mind only works in this state? When did I say the mind only works in the waking state? Just earlier, you said that there is no mind in the dream state. I said that, um, that, what did I say? I said, there's no mind in the waking state. If the mind isn't there, like when it's in dream state or deep sleep state, there's no mind. Yeah. When there's no mind, there's no world, waking world we're talking about. Okay. Because we're in, a, we're in a different state. Yeah. In dream state, in deep sleep state, three states of consciousness. Yeah. Deep sleep, dream, waking state. When the mind is not in the waking state, i.e. you're asleep, there's no world for you. No waking world for you. Okay. Fine. That's what the idealists say. 
no mind, no world. The wheel is saying, yeah, but just because you're asleep, there's still a horse there, I can see it. So it's the object that's responsible, not the mind. These are the two different arguments, yeah? Does that make it clearer? Yeah, great. So they both have their own um, ideas, both different philosophers. Plato, and I think uh, we said there's another philosopher who thought the idealist was right. They, they, they brought up the theory of idealist, Berkeley, Berkeley and Hegel. And the other philosophers, different philosophers thought the realist were correct. So then they argue. Now, what does Vedanta say? This is now the crux of it. And Vedanta says you need both. In a nutshell, that's what they're saying. Both of you are right, but both of you are wrong. You need both. Meghna. The Vedantic theory states that neither the subject nor the object per se produces the world. It takes both the subject perceiver and the object perceived for creating it. The idealists and the realists have come together to account for its creation. Neither of them can possibly do it alone. When the subject of the idealists and the object of the realists meet, there arises the phenomenon of the world. Action and reaction take place. The interaction between the subject and the object, between the perceiver and perceived, between thought and thing, produces the world. And the standpoint is that both the subject and object are necessary to create the world. When both idealists and realists, both theories meet, when the subject, the mind, perceives the object, then the world is created. Meaning, if the mind is there to see a river, you see a river. That's the perception. It's quite straightforward. You're in front of your computer, your mind is there. The computer is there, you're seeing your computer. So when they both meet, then there's a perception. That's all it says. We're going to go into more detail now, the Vedantic theory. Any questions before we move on? Okay. Magna. Examine a perception, the perception of a flower. How does it take place? The Vedantic theory states that the quality attribute, the quality attribute of the flower exists in the flower as the object. The thought of the flower exists in the mind as the subject. The subject impinges upon the object to bring about the perception of the flower. The union of the thought and the quality of flower produces it. If neither of them is absent, there can be, if either of them is absent, there can be no perception. Say the flower is not there. Instead, a stone is in the place of the flower. Then you will not perceive the flower. Likewise, if the thought of the flower is not in the mind, instead, another thought has preoccupied the mind. You will not perceive the flower even if it were there. 
Therefore, it takes both the existence of the thought and the quality of the flower to bring about the perception of the flower, the creation of the flower. If you examine a perception, say a flower, the Vedantic theory states that the quality of the flower exists in the flower. The quality of the flower, meaning the petals, the color, the fragrance, these are the qualities of the flower. They exist. The thought of the flower exists in the mind of the subject, in you. And the combination of both, the thought and the quality of the object brings about the perception. If one was absent, then the perception would not be there. In other words, let's say your mind is disturbed. Something's happened, you're stressed. Your mind is preoccupied. There's no thought of the flower. You're thinking of other things. You will not see the flower, even if it's there. No mind, but you won't see the flower, even if the flower's there. Also, if the flower is not there, instead there's a stone, you will not see the flower, you will see a stone. So both the mind and the object has to be there for there to be a perception. When they say the mind, the mind has to be present and has to think of that object for it to perceive it. The union of both. The thought and the quality of the flower has to be there for, for you to be able to see the flower. For you to be able to, a perception, a creation of the flower. So those five senses perceive the world. Both has to be there. I know it sounds a bit complicated, but we're gonna go into more detail. Does anyone have any clarifications? In a nutshell, he's saying the object and the mind has to be there. And the quality of that object has to be there. A flower is different from a stone. Any clarifications? Yeah, Dimple. So is it, do you mean, so it's, it's like when you're trying to look for something and you can't find it, but it's there. But because you're thinking about other stuff or you've got worry and anxiety or you're thinking, oh, I've got to do this where I can't find it. Is that what you mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. Both has to be there for you to be able to see it. The thought in your mind and the object. Yeah. The object may be there, but if the thought in your mind isn't there, then you won't perceive it. It's very subtle. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going in a car, you and your partner, your partner may see something because it's looking for something. He's looking for the meadows or the valley, a river. He's, you're driving. He's looking out the window. Yeah. He may see it, but you're not looking for it. You won't see it. The thought of it is not in your mind. So you won't see that object. Both the mind has to be there and the object has to be there. The quality of the object has to be there. Yeah? Okay. Any other clarifications? It does take 
you know, you do need to think about it. Good ones, how many times I've read it before I got it. <laughs> um, okay, now we bring in one more, one more um, part in the equation, which is the role of God, the role of Brahman. So far we know the mind's got to be there and the, the quality of the object has to be there to be a perception. Now, what role does Brahman play? Like now. The Vedantic theory reaches further to establish the underlying reality in both. The supreme reality, Brahman, is all-pervading. It exists everywhere, in the subject and the object. The object flower has a certain quality, which is variable, changing. Take away the quality of the flower. What lies beneath is not zero, not nothing, but the changeless reality. The quality is the structure, the reality, the substratum. The union of the structure and the substratum is the flower. Similarly, the, the reality lies beneath the subject, beneath the thought of the flower as well. Thus, the reality, Brahman, supports both the subject and object, the thought of the flower and quality of the flower. These facts defined and brought together gives the mathematical equation for the world. So, the Vedantic theory goes one step further, brings in the underlying reality, Brahman, in both the subject and object. No, we say Brahman is all pervading, it's everywhere. Everything happens in the medium of Brahman, God. Isn't it? Don't we say everything is Brahman? This world is Brahman. So naturally, Brahman is the substratum, the supporter of everything. This is what it's saying, basically. So both the flower and the thought, your mind, is happening in the medium of Brahman. Without Brahman, there would be neither. Brahman is the enlivening factor. And I'll give you an example. It's like, if we talk about fishes, when we talk about fishes, we understand straight away that it is in water. Isn't it? I saw a fish swimming. Where would it be swimming? In the water. We automatically believe it's swimming in water. It cannot swim anywhere else. You wouldn't think of a fish swimming without water. Take the fish away, the water is still there. So you can say water is the substratum of all the fishes, all the animals in the in the in the in the in the ocean. Similarly, when we say flower, you must understand that there is also Brahman. When you mention anything in the world, Brahman is the underlying substratum, isn't it? Just like water is the substratum of all fishes. Think about it. When we say the thought of the flower, we must understand there is also Brahman backing that thought. 
What's in livingness? Brahman. Without Brahman, there would not be no thoughts. There would be no mind. So when we say the thought of flower, we must understand that there is also Brahman back in that thought. The object has a certain quality to define it. Example, flower has a certain quality. If this quality is taken away, what is left? Brahman. Changeless reality, Brahman. Just like you take the fish away, what's left? The ocean. So now, does everyone understand what we're saying here? The fish example is um, the best example I can give. And Swamiji gives that example. So imagine Brahman as being the ocean. We're all fishes. All the objects are fishes in the ocean. All the objects are plants in the ocean. We're all fishes alive. We can only be alive because of the ocean. Similarly, anything we do, everything you do in the world, this whole world is backed by God, Brahman. So therefore, the amalgamation of these facts give the mathematical equation of the world, which we're going to give now. The mathematical equation of the world. Except don't worry too much about it. He who gets it, gets it. <laughs> this is this is the... Uh, what's the... Ya Pasati Sa I have to ask my uh, mentor here. Ya Pasati Sa Pasati. He who gets it, gets it. He who sees it, sees it. This is what they say. Yeah, Klamesh. Even the fish needs Brahman in it to be alive. We're giving this as an example in comparison to Brahman. If the ocean was Brahman compared to the world, we all function with the underlying reality, which is Brahman. Just like all the fishes function in the underlying reality, which is the ocean. So we're making a comparison. Yeah, no, yeah, no I'm saying, but even like the world is Brahman. I'm here. I'm here because it's me, M plus B plus B. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, this is exactly what we're, we're coming to. This is the equation. Anything and everything is backed by Brahman, which is what this world is. See, this prepares us for the next chapter, which is illusions. The whole world is an illusion. How is it an illusion? We're gonna cover that in the next chapter. The whole world is Maya. Why are we even talking about this subject if the whole world is an illusion? We're in, part, we're in that illusion talking about nonsense when everything is unreal. So, you know, <laughs> when you get to the next chapter, you think, why did I study all of this? Only so you can understand the next chapter. <laughs> You're with me. <laughs> but if I just said to you in the first chapter, the world is illusion, you'll be saying this guy's a madman. <laughs> so let's go into the, the equation of the world. Mathematical equation for the world, what is this? Okay. 
like that. Thank you. Let the quality of flower be represented by QF and the underlying reality by B. Then the equation for the object flower will be QF plus B, which is the quality of flower and the underlying reality put together. Take the example of another object, a pen. The pen has its quality. Let the quality of pen be represented by QP. The reality is the same, B. Then the equation for the object pen will be QP plus B. Similar equations can be made for the countless objects of the world. And the world, the whole object world perceived will be the aggregate of the qualities of all, sub, all objects of the world and the reality. What I'm saying is, we're now going to break it down and come to a mathematical equation saying, the quality of the flower, let QF represent the quality of the flower, plus Brahman. So the object flower is represented as QF, quality of flower, plus Brahman. For pen, it would be QP. Your car would be QC, plus Brahman. So you can make a similar equation for all the objects in the world, all the objects perceived, and the reality Brahman. Your television, QT plus Brahman. Everything plus B. Your coffee cup, QC plus Brahman. Every object can have, be abbreviated in that way. And then the mind. The QT plus B. Okay. Does everyone understand that? It's very, very straightforward. We're just giving each object a little equation. Yeah? Okay. What's the uh, next one, Agna? Let the entire range of objects of the world be marked object well, O1, O2, O3, etc. The qualities of the objects be Q01, Q02, Q03, etc. The underlying reality B. Then the equation for the object world for the entire perceived world will be Q01 plus Q02 plus Q03, etc., plus B. The subject is the mind. It consists of various thoughts. The thought of the flower, thought of pen, thoughts of the entire range of objects of the world. When all thoughts are removed from the subject, what remains is not zero, not nothing, but the underlying reality. So it's saying there, pretty straightforward, let all the objects in the world be represented by O1, O2, O3, object one, object two, object three. Right now you're seeing your laptop, you're seeing your coffee mug, you're seeing your table, object one, object two, object three. The qualities of the object is represented by Q01, quality of object one, etc., etc. So we can say the equation for the world will be quality of object one, quality of object two, quality of object three, etc., plus Brahman. And this is the world, all different objects. And what differentiates them is their quality. 
Make sense? All different objects in the world, they differ because of their qualities. A car with three wheels and a car with four wheels, they both are cars, but they differ because of their qualities. But each one has the underlining reality, Brahman. Any questions? I'm breaking it down as simple as I can. Okay, what happens next? Yeah, so there's a question. So everything exists in the medium of Brahman. So when you say the quality, yeah. that quality exists because of Brahman. Yeah. Right. So my mind is able to think because of Brahman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything happens in the medium of Brahman. But we don't believe it. That's why we have to explain it in this way. We think we are the creator of everything. We believe we are responsible for everything. This is showing the role of God, Brahman, in everything in the world, without which nothing would be there. Yeah, Anita. So am I right to understand that everything I see is through the eyes of Brahman? Is that what you're saying? You see, ultimately, everything is Brahman, okay. including yourself. That's the ultimate level, but we can't think in that way. You see, so he's breaking it down for you to get to that level of understanding that the whole world is Brahman, I'm Brahman, this whole world is an illusion because there's only one thing in this whole world, universe and that's Brahman. Yeah. you with me that's the ultimate but because we live this limited life we don't understand that the ego comes into it i did this i did that because of me this happened without me this wouldn't be here yeah. our ego comes in we forget the role of Brahman. Yeah. but ultimately the last chapter says yes that's exactly what you've just said it's very subtle concepts and the thing is our where our intellects are not used to thinking of these subtleties we're not used to in everyday life thinking of these subtleties so we find it difficult to engage at this level and that's why we have to do it in the morning where our intellects more stronger to understand these sort of concepts. Any other questions? Okay, Megna. Let the thought of flower be represented by TF, the underlying reality by B. Then the equation for the subject flower, i.e. the thought in the subject mind, reacting with object flower will be TF plus B. Similarly, let the thought of pen be represented by TP and reality by B. Then the equation for the subject pen, i.e. the thought in the subject mind, reacting with the object pen will be TP plus B. 
Again, the entire range of objects is object one, object two, object three, etc. And the thought of objects is TO1, TO2, TO3. Reality is B. Then the whole subject mind perceiver would be the aggregate of thoughts of all subjects of the world and the reality. The equation for the whole subject, the entire mind, perceiver of world will be thought of object one plus thought of object two plus thought of object three, etc., plus B. So we first gave the equation for all the objects in the world, quality of object, the quality and the object and Brahman. Now we're saying, well, this is the mind now. Similar equation for the thoughts in the mind. So we're taking the subject in consideration now. If the thought of the flower is represented by TF, thought of flower, and Brahman as B, then the equation for the thought of the flower in the mind reacting with the object flower will be thought of flower plus Brahman. Therefore, the thought of the whole world can be represented as thought of object TO1 plus TO2 plus TO3 and Brahman. So you have to, so everything you see, it has to be thought in your mind to see it. As you said, you don't see it unless the thought is there. See, we're explaining the phenomenon of the world. It's not going to be simple. <laughs> Anyone thinking that it will be simple is deluded. Yeah? We talk about little things in the world we try to understand. We're talking about how, does, how do we see this world and what is this world? I mean, that's a deep topic. So it's not going to be come to you just like that. You have to put some effort into it to think. Okay, we're going to get through this now. Magna. The Vedantic theory states the perception of the flower is a result of the combination of the subject and object, the union of thought of flower and quality of flower. The TF plus B and QF plus B. Therefore, the equation of the flower is TF, thought of flower, plus quality of flower, plus B. And the equation of the pen, thought of pen, plus quality of pen, plus B. Likewise, the equation of the phenomenon, phenomenal world will be the combination of the thoughts of objects and qualities of objects and Brahman. The combination of the entire subject and object and Brahman. Therefore, the mathematical equation of the world will be thought of object one plus thought of object two plus thought of object three, etc., plus quality of object one, quality of object two, plus quality of object three, etc plus Brahman. That's it. That's the world. <laughs> so uh, yeah, laughing. That's that's the world. We've just got we've just done it. What is that? Who would like to explain that? Who did anyone get that? Explain that in layman terms. 
So quite simply, an idea and the object. So you have an idea, a oh. flower, a flower exists. That's Brahman equals the world. Quite simply. The thought in the mind of the flower and the quality of the flower plus Brahman, you see a flower. So the existence of the flower is what you mean when you say quality. So it has a certain quality. Yeah. Yeah. That differentiates it from a stone. Yes. So therefore, this whole world is made up of your thoughts and the quality of those objects that you see in Brahman. That's it. The, the only thing I would say, so even the quality of the object and the thoughts have Brahman in there as well. Everything back to Brahman. That's why the whole equation, let me read the equation. Therefore, the mathematical equation of the world will be thought of object one, let it be a flower. Thought of object two, let it be whatever you want it to be. Thought of object three, etc. Plus the quality of the object one, quality of the object two, quality of the object three, etc. Plus Brahman. And that is you and the world and how you perceive the world. You take everything away, what's left? Brahman. Any other clarification? So think about it afterwards, read it, and you will, you will get it. You just have to bring the effort. Ravi, we're going to give some examples now how this works. They may be a bit clearer after this. Thus, the Vedic theory of perception states the phenomenon of the world is brought about by the reaction of the subject and the object in the medium of Brahman. A few interesting illustrations given below help to further elucidate the theory. One, two palms clapping produce sound. Either one of them on its own cannot. It is the play of both palms that does it. Similarly, the subject mind alone cannot produce the phenomenal world, nor the object world. It is the impact between the two that accounts for the perception of the world. So there's a reaction between the two. Only then there's a perception of the world. It's the reaction of the subject and object in the medium of Brahman. Two palms together produce sound. One hand cannot generate sound. Similarly, the mind by itself or the object alone cannot produce the world. It is the impact between the two that produces the perception of the world, just as the impact of the two palms makes the sound. They need both to have the perception of the world. Couple more examples. Electricity has a positive and a negative pole. 
neither of them produces a spark. But when the two poles come in contact with each other, a spark is created. Though electricity as such has no spark in it, likewise Brahman, the supreme reality, has no creation, no world in it. But when the two conditions of Brahman come together, they are sparks of the phenomenal world. Brahman conditioned by thought becomes the subject mind, conditioned by quality becomes the object world. The subject and object are like the two poles of electricity. When they come together, there arises the perception of the world. The same Brahman is the underlying reality. Subject, the mind, us, and the object are the conditioning of Brahman. And he gives an example of electricity as a positive and negative pole. Neither of them produce a spark. You know, your car battery, you need to connect both poles. Then it powers the car, it starts your car. When the two poles come together in contact, a spark is created. Electricity has no spark. Similarly, Brahman has no creation, no world in it. But only when the two get together, the subject mind and the object, there arises the perception of the world. One more example. The ocean is a vast sheet of still water below with the waves of the surface. The water below is calm, whereas the waves on top are ever disturbed. They produce ripples and bubbles, froth and foam all over the surface. Notwithstanding the varied expression, it is water and water alone. The sheet below, the waves, the ripples and bubbles, the froth and the foam, the different manifestations are brought about by the collision of waves. One wave is like thought of the subject mind and the other like the quality of the object world. When these two impinge, there arises the disturbed water, the phenomenal world. Saying the ocean, water, when the waves clash at the surface of the ocean, all the foam, all the bubbles, ripples, Waves. Ultimately, it's all water, though, isn't it? So different, so many different expressions of water. All due to the clashes of the waves. One big wave, one small wave. One, you see foam, you see ripples. So much variation. But everything is water. There's so many different manifestations of water. So similarly, the thought in the mind is like one wave. The quality of the object is another wave. When they clash, there is the manifestation of the world. And this is how this example explains it. But everything is water. Similarly, everything is Brahman. But different expression, expressions, just like different waves, a tsunami, still water. Next paragraph. Brahman is likened to water in the ocean, 
one wave to the subject, another to the object. When the waves clash, there arises the varied expression of water. Similarly, the clash of the subject and the object produces the phenomenal world. However, Brahman remains the same, chainless reality before and after the world emerges, just as water remains as water in and through all its expressions. I've just heard of that. All the waves, even tsunamis, the water remains always the same as water. Similarly, no matter what happens in the world, Brahman always remains as a changeless reality. It's unaffected by anything. Just like the water is unaffected by what goes on at the surface. It's all water at the end of the day. So whatever happens in this world, Brahman, God is unaffected. It's changeless. Any questions? These are just examples for you to ponder on to try and explain this uh, topic. So we'll get to the end of now, into end of the uh, last paragraph. The world projected upon Brahman is like a pattern of cloth woven from cotton. The pattern is made up of the warp and the woof. The warp and the woof are like the subject mind and the object world. The combination makes the pattern, produces the phenomenal world. Just as cotton pervades the warp and the woof, the entire pattern, so does Brahman pervade everything everywhere. Just another example which you can read and think about, about how cotton, a piece of cloth is cotton. Whatever design is on top, is just how the warp and the woof has been put together, but ultimately it's all cotton. Cotton pervades the whole material. Last paragraph. Thus, Brahman remains ever the one supreme reality, absolute, immaculate, unaffected by the projection of the world upon it. Brahman is like space. Space cannot be conditioned, limited, divided, yet it is referred to as a pot space room space, inside space, outside space, etc. Nevertheless, space is one indivisible, all-pervading entity, not subject to division. Brahman transcends even the subtly of space. It is ever the illuminable, invincible, infinite reality. That reality is yourself, your Atman. Realize that. You will then realize the illusory nature of the world and rise above it, become the supreme reality. They think Brahman alone is the absolute reality, unaffected by the projection of the world upon it. Brahman is the reality, indivisible, infinite, this reality is the self, Atman within all of us. Just like space cannot be divided, we say room space, cupboard space, space outside, but it's all space. Similarly, Brahman is just one. 
cannot be divided in any way. So, this reality is the self Atman within all of us. If we realize the self within us, we will then understand the illusory nature of the world and rise above it, become one with Brahman. And that's our goal in life, to understand this, that I am not this body, mind, intellect. I am part of Brahman. You rise above everything. Any negativity, any issues in your life, you rise above it. If you, understand, if you identify with the reality within you, the self. Any questions? I hope I've done justice to this chapter and you've had some idea of what is being said here of the phenomenon of the world. Yeah, it is complicated and it is deep. And like I said, you really need to think about it if you want to, to understand it better. Any clarifications? Unfortunately, it gets better. <laughs> I use a negative and a positive. Unfortunately, it gets better. <laughs> the illusions. The next step. When, whence, wherefore this world? What's the origin and purpose of the world? Baffling queries. We're going to cover that next next week. <laughs> it is fascinating. Fascinating. See, even if it just agitates your mind, it's doing its job. <laughs> This topic, the subject, if it agitates your mind, it's doing your job. It's doing the job. Yeah. Enlivening your boring Sunday. Enlightening your boring Sunday. Okay, any other questions? Anything relating to any other Vedantic questions? Okay, I don't blame you. Okay, great. So we'll see everyone next Sunday and we'll take up this. This chapter, the illusions, Maya, it's really, really interesting subject. The world and illusion. We explain how the world is an illusion. Okay, well, I'll see you all next week. <laughs>